Today we're going to do chapter 3, Mishnah 3 and Mishnah 4. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion says, Shnaim sheyoshvin ve'ein benem de Torah. Two people sit together and there is not between them an exchange of words of Torah. Behold, this is a session of scorners or scoffers. Shinemar, as it says, Ubamoshav leitzim lo yashav, in the session of scorners he did not sit. However, but two people sit together and there is between them words of Torah, the divine presence rests between them, as it says, Az Nidbaru then spoke those who fear Hashem one to another, and Hashem listened and heard and written was a book of remembrance before him for those who fear Hashem and give thought to his name. When people are sitting and they're not studying, then it's a session of of, of leitzanas, of scoffers, of mockery. However, when they study Torah, then the divine presence is with them. Ainly Elishnaim. From this verse, I will only know that there's two people who study Torah, that the Almighty is with them. My name Shafil Echad. How do I know that even if there's one person, Sheyoshev, who is sitting, Ve'osid Torah and occupying himself with Torah, Shakarish Baruchu, Kaveolo Schar, that the Almighty, the Almighty will set aside for him reward, Chenemar, Yoshev, Badad, Vidom, Hinatal, Allah. Let him sit in solitude and be still, for he will receive reward for it. So there's three ideas in this Mishnah. Number one, when people are sitting together, two people sitting together and not studying Torah, it's considered a session of scorners. Number two, if they are studying Torah, the divine presence is with them. And even one person who studies Torah, they get re- that person gets reward. And a very similar lesson in, in Mishnah 4, Rabbi Shimon says, Three people ate on one table. Torah, but they not say words of Torah on it. It's as if they ate from the offerings of the dead. Shenemar, as it says in the verse, for all the tables are full of vomit and filth without the omnipresent. However, Shlosha Sha'achlu al Shulchan Echad, if three people ate on one table, Ve'amru al of Torah, and they said upon it words of Torah, Kilo Achim Shalom as if they ate from the table of God. Shenemar, as the verse says, and he said, this to me is the table that is before Hashem. So again, we see this idea that when people are together, they're supposed to be studying Torah. Two people together, if they don't study, then it's a it's a session of scorners. If they do study, the, the divine presence is with them. Even if someone is alone, they should study Torah. And if there's three people that are eating together and they're not studying Torah, it's as if they're eating from the offerings of the dead. But if they are studying Torah, it's as if they're eating from the table of God. So these are the two missions. I want to get into the character of Rabbi Hanina. Ben Trajon, the author of the first Mishnah. Uh, the author of the second Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon, it's most likely Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of the most colorful and iconic figures of the uh, Mishnahic era. There's going to be a Mishnah later on that we're going to uh, have authored by him, and therefore we'll wait to give full treatment on his character and personality then. But I want to talk about Rabbi Hanin Ben Trajon uh, a little bit. He was a sage who lived in the end of the first century of the Common Era and the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. Uh, he has a very famous daughter. His daughter is maybe the most famous woman in all of Talmud. Her name was Bruria. She was a sage on par with the male sages of her time. And she had a very interesting life. That was the daughter of Rabbi Hanin ben Tradion. She was married to Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is one of the five students, the five primary students of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Meir is the primary author of the Mishnah. 
Because when there is a Mishnah that's unattributed, if there's a Mishnah that we don't know who said it, we, it's not attributed to one of the great sages. Sta Mishnah, Rabbi Meir, a unattributed Mishnah is the authorship of Rabbi Meir. Why? Because when they were collecting the writings to build the Mishnah, they took Rabbi Meir's writings and that became the authority of writing and they added the writings of all the other sages. And therefore, if there's no name attributed to it, it is Rabbi Meir, who is the author, and he is the son-in-law of the author of this Mishnah, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. And he's, the most famous episodes that were told about him in the Talmud relate to his passing, his tragic and uh, untimely passing. Why? Because he was living at a time, generally that whole era was was marked by the relationship the Jewish people had with their Roman overlords and the very harsh conditions upon which they lived. And certainly for the Torah scholars, there were times where they were not allowed to band together, the centers of Torah were destroyed, the rabbis had to go undercover, as we know, and that intensified when Hadrian assumed emperorship in the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. And then in about the year 130, uh, Hadrian instituted very harsh restrictions against organized Jewish religion. You weren't allowed to circumcise your child. You weren't allowed to study Torah. You weren't allowed to observe Shabbos. You weren't allowed to convey smicha, rabbinic ordination from teacher to student. There's a very famous episode of Rabbi Judah the Prince when he was a baby. He was born around the year 135 or 136. And he wasn't allowed to be circumcised because the rules were that any child who is circumcised, not only will a child be killed, the mother will be killed as well. They throw them both off a cliff. That's what they used to do. And they heard a rumor about Rabbi Judah the Prince that he was circumcised and they had to bring the child to Rome to prove that he wasn't circumcised. And the story goes that along the way, Rabbi Judah the Prince's mo- mother and the mother of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus swapped babies and therefore like these two people who would grow up to – one of them – to be the head of the Romans, wanted to be the head of the Jews and become colleagues and friends. They were swapped as babies and therefore the child that was presented as Rabbi Judah the Prince was indeed uncircumcised and he survived. That's the story. But that shows a little bit in the uh, zeitgeist of the time uh, where how it was very difficult uh, and it was very – there was very harsh restrictions against practicing Judaism in, openly. But there was one edict that went out against public Torah study. And as we know, Rabbi Tiva defied that edict and was killed in a very brutal, horrific fashion. That information became known to the other sages of the time. And some of them, I would imagine, tried to tamp down their exposure. But Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan, when he heard about that, he knew that there are bad things are about to happen to the Jews across the board. And he too, like Rabbi Kiva before him, he too was captured and was arrested by the Romans as a result of him teaching Torah publicly. But before that, there was a, a great reckoning that was taking place. And in fact, there's these very interesting conversations that Rabbi Kiva Trajan conducted with his colleagues about whether or not they have the merits to persevere and to withstand this Roman onslaught. And he said, for example, to one of his colleagues, he said, you were arrested for five infractions. 
I was arrested for only one. But you're going to be saved and I'm not going to be saved. Because I only study Torah. But you engaged in Torah study together with acts of kindness. And therefore, you're going to be able to survive while I'm going to die. And the Talmud inquires, wait a minute. Did he not engage in acts of kindness? The great Rabbi Hanibah tried to not engage in acts of kindness? That's not true. Why? Because he was someone who was the point man for charity. People would give him the money. He would disperse the money to people who needed it. And in addition, there was one time that his personal money and the money of charity got commingled. And he didn't know which money was his and which money was belonging to charity. And he just donated the whole thing to charity. And therefore, we see he was engaged in kindness and helping other people. It wasn't just about Torah. Thomas says, well, yes, he was engaged in kindness, but not as much as he could have been. And therefore, he felt that he was vulnerable because he didn't have this complete package. Yes, he excelled in Torah study. And he also participated in acts of kindness, but not as much as he could have. And therefore, he was confident he's not going to make it. And the Talmud goes on to tell the story of how he died. They found him. He was studying Torah. And he had tremendous crowds with him. And he had an open Torah scroll with him. And they brought him to a public square. And they took the Torah scroll with him. And they surrounded him with branches. They're not... They didn't put him on top of the branches. They put the branches around him at a distance. And then they lit the branches on fire, but they put a cold compress on his heart. They wanted to prolong his agony, and they wanted to make sure that he doesn't expire too quickly. So they put the fire at a distance where it will still burn him, but not kill him. And they put a compress on his heart, and then they wrapped the Torah scroll around him. To show that, like, they're burning him with the Torah scroll that he used to commit his offense. And they brought everyone there to watch him, to watch him suffer and to, to really compel or to, to stamp upon the hope of the Jewish onlookers. And the Talmud goes on to describe what happened amidst this torture. So his daughter, for example, says, I cannot bear to see you suffering like this. And he responds, well, if it was just me suffering, if it was just me being burned, then that would be terrible. But now they're burning not only me, they're burning the Almighty's Torah. And therefore I know the Almighty will not sit silently while his Torah is being burnt. And therefore once he's going to demand a a payment, an accounting for the shame of the Torah, he'll probably also demand an accounting for the shame of the pain that I had to undergo. That's the conversation that he had with his daughter. And then the students asked him a question. They say, well, what do you see? And he responded with the memorable words, I see that the parchment is being burned, but the letters are flying up to heaven. Meaning that they're burning the parchment, but the Torah in itself is untouchable to them. And then they said to him, why don't you help aid the expedition of your death by opening your mouth? Let the fire come into your mouth to burn you, to kill you. And then he said, again, another iconic line here, it's better that my soul should be taken by the same entity that gave it to me. God gave you my soul and therefore if he wants it, 
Let him take it. I'm not going to help him to do that. Meanwhile, amidst this whole conversation, the Roman executioner there who's overseeing this is obviously moved. And he says to Rabbi Hanimachadjon, if I expedite your death, will you guarantee me a portion in Olmaba in the world to come? And he said yes, and he swore to the effect. And immediately the executioner raised the flame, pulled off the compress from his heart, himself jumped into the fire, himself expired together with Rabbi Hanimachadjon. And everyone heard a prophetic booming voice. Rabbi Hanin Ben and the Kaltstantanuri, the executioner, both of you are ushered into the world to come. That's the episode that we hear. Very stirring, moving, tragic episode about Rabbi Hanin Ben his dedication to Torah study, and his end, his expiration in martyrdom. Now, I think... In the context of his time and his era and the challenges that he faced, I think it does shed more light on the salience of his teaching. You know, there's all kinds of prohibitions against the study of Torah. Some people are going underground, but I would say there's definitely no longer a stigma. If someone says, hey, Torah study is not for me, it's too dangerous. Well, that may have been a sentiment that was anathema in earlier generations, and then today, well, if it's actually dangerous, you're actually going to get killed, then it seems like it's a very prudent position to hold that, well, I'll study Torah, but not so much, not so often, not so overtly. I'll, I'll go underground. I'll do other things that are safer. And therefore, he's telling us like very clearly, he's like, you're either studying Torah and therefore you're in the presence of God. Or you're in a presence of the scoffers. There's two kinds of groups that you're part of. And yes, studying Torah may entail forfeiture of other opportunities, which it does in every generation, or at least assumed forfeiture of other opportunities. And it may entail involving yourself in some dangerous activity. But you know what? It's still important to stress that if you're abandoning Torah, and you're going into the other camp. There's two camps. There's the camp of the scoffers, the mockers. The clowns, and then there's the ones who are with God. And you have to choose which ones, which, which one you can be part of. And that stark contrast is, at this particular time in history, is a very valuable one because he's, he's maintaining the Jewish perspective. And that is that we have to be connected to Torah, clinging to Torah, irrespective of the dangers that it may entail. Because otherwise, well, then with, we're with the scoffers. And I think this is, it's a valuable lesson for us today. You know, he's again creating this, this, this binary option. Uh, you're either with God in the divine presence of, two people sitting. If they're studying Torah, they're with the divine presence of God. If they're not doing anything else, well, then they're considered scoffers. And there's a Moshe of Leitzim. It's a congregation. It's a, it's a convention of people that are not taking life seriously. I heard something that uh, sounded very uh, reasonable from one of the commentators. That a scoffer, the definition of a scoffer, of a late in the Torah, it's twofold. Number one, it's someone who takes something which is really supposed to be very serious and renders it as not serious. It's the disregardment of what is important. Conversely, it is the amplification of what is not important. On one hand, you're taking things which are really important, like your life, 
What are you living for? What do you, what's your, what, what purpose do you have in life? Uh, are you trying to accomplish? What are you doing to invest in your soul? What are you going to say when you come before God? Those things which really, really matter, those are disregarded by the scoffer. And the things that really, really, really don't matter, like sports, dare I say politics, things that are really are nothing, that really have no bearing on anything in, 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 in the permanent cell sense, well, those become a priority and those become important. It's this idea of distorting and confusing and conflating what's important and what is not important. And here, I think it's also important to stress here. He doesn't say that when someone is not studying Torah, that they are becoming a scoffer. If you read his words very critically, you'll see that there's a, he doesn't say that someone engages in an activity of scoffery or scornery. Rather, he says it's a session. It's a convention. It's some platform or some degree of permanence that is given to something which really has no value. That has, it's totally meaningless. What it's telling us is that the problem is not that someone likes sports or likes politics or likes things which are immaterial, really, in the big sense. Rather, that you make a session out of it, that it becomes the primary focus. It, it becomes, it's like they pointed out, that you have the um, the sports section of the of the New York Times. It's a whole section with pages and pages of analysis of a child's game. It's like if my kids play Connect Four. To have someone who's hired to analyze the moves and the, and then there's a, and then there's a post-game press conference. Now, that's of course silly, but what's the difference? In fact, my children play Connect Four. It's more important. This is my children. They're playing. But you wouldn't read the post-game analysis. You wouldn't listen to the post-game press conference. So here there's some people that I'll never meet in my life playing a game somewhere, a child's game that they're throwing balls around and hitting it with baseball bats. I know. I like sports too. I know that. But it, it really is immaterial. If you kind of break it down to what it really is, it's adults playing a children's game. That's what it really is. In its essence, if you just, if you just distill it to what it really is, it's something which is totally immaterial for us in our lives. But we have a tendency and maybe even urge to make it very, very important and to make it a central focus. And that's the problem. When it becomes a session. It becomes something, a platform on its own, a session of scorners. And this does leave the door open for someone to say, listen, you know, if you, people need to decompress. People need to have outlets. People need to have hobbies. That's good. I don't know if they still collect stamps or baseball cards. I, it's good to have a hobby. It's good to have something else that you do that's not so important. You know, people, your brain will get frazzled if you just studied Torah all day and all night. There is a mission later on that we'll see. That talks about the 48 ways to get Torah, to acquire Torah, 48 ways to acquire Torah. And one of those ways is a little bit of idle conversation, which could be read as a minimization of idle conversation, but it could also be meant be read as a little bit. Sometimes if you sprinkle in the idle conversation, it is it, it enables the Torah study to, because it clears your mind, you talk about some nonsense, whatever, you're able to get back to things that are important. But there's a difference between an idle conversation and an idle session. It's like, this is, we're sitting down to talk about this, 
and this is our focus, this is the plan for the next hour or two hours, this is what we're doing. That's when you're taking what is something which is an enabler and you're now creating a platform for the staffery and there's two people sitting and this, they're sitting and they're talking about this. They made a platform to it. It's not something which comes up in the course of another conversation. It's not something which is a diversion from what really is their, the topic of the conversation. It is its, its platform on its own and then it becomes a, uh, a matter of, uh, of scoffery, of mockery, of, again, giving primacy, giving real focus to something that really is totally inconsequential. On the flip side, we have two people sitting and studying Torah. And you know who's with them? The divine presence is amongst them. There is an idea that we've spoken about in the past uh, that we find in the Midrash after Sinai. After Sinai, Jewish people got the Torah. And right afterwards, what do they have? The commandment to build the tabernacle. And the Midrash tells us that these two things are connected. It's as if the Torah is the Almighty's daughter, and we married the Almighty's daughter, the Torah, at Sinai. But now the Almighty misses his daughter. And therefore he tells us, build for me a house so that I could reside next to you. I could be close to my daughter. That's what the Midrash tells us. Implicit in that is that the Almighty's still connected to Torah. Even though he gave it to us, he's still connected to it. And therefore wherever Torah is, the Almighty is present. And therefore, what it tells us here is that there's two people studying Torah. Ergo, necessarily, the Almighty is present with them because the Almighty is always present wherever there is Torah. However, if there's only one person studying Torah, it's not considered that there's words of Torah between them. It's more like an internal study. It's not as good. The Almighty gives you a reward, but the presence of the Almighty is not as palpable. That's the first teaching here. In the second teaching, we also see that there's three people studying Torah then they're, it's as if they're partaking in the meal of God, whereas if three people are eating it but they're not studying Torah, it's as if they're eating from the food of the dead. Again, it's giving us a very sharp contrast. On one hand, you have the the meal of the dead, which is maybe a reference to idolatry. On the other hand, you have your partaking in the meal of God. It's very diametrically opposed realities, one with Torah, one without Torah. And we see another angle here. And that is that our perspective is not to take the Torah, to take the spiritual realm and divorce it from the physical realm. Rather, it is to meld the two. It's to infuse the two. We take what is previously mundane, which could be a dinner, right? You go to dinner. Everyone, everyone eats a sandwich. It's not a spiritual thing. Everyone has to eat. So what do we do? We say, no, we're going to take the thing that is not holy or not essentially holy, and we're going to elevate and make it holy. And therefore, we're highlighted this idea. Three people sitting in there and they're, and they're eating. There's two ways to have this meal look from the spiritual sense. It could be either they're eating from the food of the dead, they're engaging in activity that is eventually going to end up in the ground because they're divorcing the spiritual realm. They're just tending to their body. And you know what? What's the legacy of the body? What's the destiny of the body? The destiny of the body is... Worms and maggots. It's gonna, it's, it's, it's the food of the dead. But if they infuse their physical meal with the spiritual Torah, then they're eating from the, from the food of God, i.e. they're intending to their soul too. They're tending to their spiritual and eternal halves as well. And that is this confluence where everyone could be happy. Your body could be happy. Your soul could be happy. 
Your spiritual have to be happy. Even the part of you that's going to inspire could also partake in it. That confluence is what we call holiness. And therefore, it's considered as if you are partaking in the meal of God.